we're here in Revelation chapter 10 and uh, maybe even chapter 11 this evening. Before I read from uh, chapter 10, let me first again put up our famous timeline on the back wall and walk you through it if you're new to Cornerstone. This timeline represents the book of Revelation from actually before Revelation chapter 1 in regards to Jesus' resurrection and then ascension uh, back into heaven, and we're looking forward to his second coming. And so we've made our way through the first several chapters. We're now in this section between Revelation 6 and 18 that has to do with seven years of tribulation that are going to come upon the earth. So don't let the timeline overwhelm you. We'll get to the rest of it as we make our way through the book of Revelation. But right now, uh, the, the Apostle John sees things that the Lord shows him concerning future events, things that we would call the end times. Big fancy word is eschatology. That just means the study of end time events. And what God shows him is that between chapter 6 and 18, there will be a series of judgments that God will pour out upon the earth. Now, I believe that Revelation chapter 4 teaches that we're going to be taken from the earth, so we won't go through this if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. The non-believers will be left behind. And the series of judgments that God will bring upon the earth is for the purpose of uh, really awakening non-believers. And there will be a series of, the book of Revelation tells us, um, three different sets of seven events. The first set of seven are the seven seals that are broken. John sees a scroll, and the scroll is rolled up and then sealed with like a wax seal, and then rolled up further and sealed again, and rolled up further and sealed again. And it is only Jesus, the Lamb, who is worthy to take the scroll and break the seals. And as he does... Uh, he announces um, a series of different judgments, the, the wrath of God that is going to come upon the earth to awaken non-believers, and that'll be followed by a series of seven trumpets that are blown by angels, and they will announce a series of judgments, and then that's followed by seven bowls that are poured out. Some translations say vials that are poured out upon the earth. And so we've made our way so far through the uh, seven trumpets. We've gotten through trumpet number six. Trumpet number seven doesn't appear to us until the end of chapter 11. So we may, um, you know, get to that place as our stopping point tonight. But uh, when you come here to chapter 10, as I mentioned last week at the close of chapter nine, when you look at all the events that are these cataclysmic, these very... um, Uh, you know, uh, terrible things that are going to be happening upon the earth. By the time you get to to the end of chapter 9, which is um, now the blowing of the sixth trumpet. So we've been through the seven seals. We've been through now six out of seven trumpets. That half of the world's population is now gone. And, And that is either because Um, A combination of the Christians have been raptured, have been taken from the earth before the tribulation events, um, or as a result of people who have died, billions of people dying during the series of the seven seals and so far the six trumpets. So we are down to now only half of the world's population still on the planet at this time when we get here now to, to chapter 10. 
And I'm going to read all of chapter 10, and then we'll come back and dig it out. It's only, what is it, 11 11 verses. But I do want to point out to you in verse 1 of chapter 10 that when John starts this chapter by saying, I saw, what we have here now is the longest vision that John is given. Because we don't see the words, I saw, again until chapter 13, verse 1. And so all of chapter 10, all of chapter 11, all of chapter 12 is one vision, and it's a very long vision. Again, we're only going to get through a small part of it, but it's the longest recorded vision that God shows John from uh, chapter 10, verse 1 to chapter 13, verse 1. The other thing that is worth noting is this is also the longest interlude between judgments, because you have a series of the seven seals that are broken, one after another, after another, after another, and then you have trumpets that are sounded one after another, after another, after another. And at the second, between the the sixth, rather, not the second, between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet is this long interlude. So there's this pause in God's judgment, which again is probably a part of his mercy that, you know, there's there's this lull and there's this moment where there's this interlude between the severity of these judgments and again, you know, uh, uh, trying to, you know, tap into the heart of God, it, it's, it's probably because God is like, okay, have you had enough yet? You know, ha- have you had enough? Before I unleash the seventh, blow the, se- the seventh trumpet, and then unleash the series of the seven bowls, have you had enough? But unfortunately, as we mentioned at the close of chapter 9 last week, it ends by saying, if you just glance back at verse 20, the end of chapter 9, it says, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons, the idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their, or their thefts. And so you have this very stubborn, reluctant population of people who are left on the planet Uh, many of whom are just angry. Uh, They don't want to uh, submit themselves and humble themselves to God. And so, you know, chapter 9 ends with this very somber note. And it's the reason why God's going to have to turn up the heat. Because the seals and then the trumpets and then the bowls become more intense as as it goes on. And so this is what God is going to do. It's going to become more intense in order to, you know, try to turn the hearts of people who were just reluctant and stubborn. So, so here we go, chapter 10, I'll read it and then we'll pray. Chapter 10, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven And swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, 
as he declared to his servants the prophets. And then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hands of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. And then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we come before you now, opening up your word, looking in here to the book of Revelation, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, Lord, and prepare us. Uh, I pray that we would be ready for your imminent return, uh, whatever day that might be, that we would always uh, be watching and uh, waiting, and that our hope would always be in you, uh, not on the things of this earth, not, not in the people of this earth, but Lord, always our hope fixed on you, the author and finisher of our faith. So we love you. Thank you for being with us tonight as we study your word together. Bless this time in your word, we ask in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Well, at the end of, uh, rather at the beginning of chapter 10, uh, John sees this mighty angel as mentioned uh, there in verse 1. And um, he, he says, still another mighty angel, because back in chapter 5, he had seen a mighty angel, a strong angel, which uh, we identified as probably uh, Gabriel. But here in chapter 10, the question becomes, who is this mighty angel? Now, when you look at the description again, and I'll just read verse 1, uh, there's some similarities between the description of this angel and actually the description of Jesus uh, back in chapter 1. But here, here again in, in verse 1 of chapter 10, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And then verse 2 talks about how he had a little book open in his hand, or some translations literally say a little scroll. And so we have the description of this mighty angel, and it tells us that he was clothed with a cloud, which is similar to the coming of Jesus. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, it tells us that Jesus, uh, John gets like a preview in chapter 1 of the second coming of Christ, which doesn't really happen until chapter 19, but he gets a preview of the second coming of Christ, and he talks about how Jesus was coming with the clouds. And also this mighty angel is described as having a rainbow on his head, just kind of like enveloping his head. And that's similar to the rainbow that is around the throne of God mentioned in chapter 4, verse 3. In addition, John says here about this angel that his face was like the sun which is similar to the countenance of Jesus in Revelation 1.16 when, when, when John is writing here about the description of the second coming of Christ. And it also tells us here in chapter 10 that the feet of this mighty angel were like pillars of fire. And that's similar to the description of Jesus back in chapter 1 verse 15, which said that Jesus' feet were like bronze as if refined in a furnace. Now, I point out the similarities between this mighty angel and Jesus in chapter 1, not to make the argument that this angel is Jesus, 
but just to kind of let you know that there are those comparisons and that some Bible scholars do believe that this angel in chapter 10 is actually Jesus. I just don't fall into that camp. There are other Bible scholars, and I tend to bend in this direction, who who don't actually believe that this is Jesus. And here are the reasons why. Uh, First of all, when you you look at uh, Revelation as a whole, Jesus is not described as an angel in the book of Revelation. He is Lord of the angels, using them to execute his judgment on the earth. Now, I will concede that in the Old Testament, there are times that Jesus appears and he's referred to sometimes as the angel of the Lord. Not that Jesus is an angel. You know, look, Jesus is God and he is infinitely superior to any angel. But just descriptively, sometimes in the Old Testament, he is called the angel of the Lord when Jesus makes an appearance prior to when he is born of a virgin, when God comes to earth, the incarnation that happens when God's seed is implanted into the womb of Mary and God takes on flesh and dwells among us and God enters our world. Prior to that event, there are different times that Jesus appears in our Old Testament and the appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament is called in theological terms a Christophany, which means just an appearance of Christ. An epiphany is an appearance of God, right? But a Christophany is an appearance of Christ. And there are different Christophanies in the Old Testament. So that's why some people look at chapter 10 and they say, well, it's an angel. It's a mighty angel. There are similarities to Jesus in chapter 1. And so this very well could be Jesus. But again... In the book of Revelation, distinct from the times that Jesus sometimes appeared in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, uh, Jesus never appears as an angel in the book of Revelation. Uh, He always appears as the Lord and is often identified as the Lamb. That is the title by which Jesus refers to himself more than any other title in the book of Revelation because he wants to be known as that redemptive Lamb that came to die for the sins of the world. But he's never seen as an angel in the book of Revelation. Another important point, I think, as to why this is not Jesus is because John identifies this angel as another. If you look there in verse 1, he says, I saw another mighty angel. And the Greek word here in the original language is alon, meaning another of the same kind. He would have probably used the word heteros, meaning another of a different kind, if it were Jesus. So the fact that he specifically says another mighty angel, alon, He's probably saying, just like a mighty angel in chapter 5, which is probably Gabriel, this is a mighty angel like that one, but not like Jesus. Thirdly, it's important to point out that this mighty angel comes to the earth between the sixth and the seventh trumpets, but Jesus does not come to earth until after the tribulation, which is chapter 19. That's when we see Jesus appearing. And so for those reasons and others, but those are just three. I don't believe that this is Jesus. So then the question again is, who is the mighty angel of Revelation chapter 10? Does it really matter? I mean, it's all speculation. So it's just a mighty angel. That's what matters. But to put a name to it, probably, not definitively, but probably Michael the archangel. 
This is probably a reference to Michael the archangel, just doesn't name him here. And by the way, Michael is listed in the Bible as the only archangel. There are not other archangels. In the book of Jude, that is the only one reference in the Bible to Michael being the archangel, meaning he is probably superior to any other angels. And there's a reason why his description, if in fact this is Michael, which I believe it's, it's probably Michael, there's a reason why the description of him is so similar to the description of Jesus in chapter 1. And, and here's the reason, because Michael's name, Michael in the Hebrew, means who is like God. And it would explain the similarity of characteristics while representing God's presence, authority, and power. So while you look at this and go, wow, this is pretty similar to Jesus in chapter 1, yeah, well, the archangel Michael, whose very name means who is like God, represents the presence, authority, and power of the Lord. So, following up now here in your Bibles, chapter 10, reading on verse 2 again, we're just going to come back and unpack each of these verses. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So this is quite a mighty creature here. And John sees this angel with one foot on the sea, one foot on the land. And that basically is indicating to us that this angel has been given complete authority by God over land and sea. For this moment, this angel has been given complete authority over land and sea. And it says in verse 3, And he cried and cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. So that part there about seven thunders uttering their voices has created a lot of discussion over the years by different Bible scholars. And uh, one of the things that is uh, probably uh, most likely relevant to that is um, it may describe, in fact, the seven, um, these seven uttered uh, thunderings, probably reflective of the voice of God. Because when David writes in Psalm 29 about the voice of the Lord, there are seven different times, I'm going to read it to you, there are seven different times that David describes the voice of the Lord. And it's probably a parallel to this, talking about the seven thunderings, the seven thunderings that uttered their voices. It's probably just a statement about the sound of God's voice. And here's what David wrote in Psalm 29, verses 3 to 9. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf, Lebanon and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare and his temple and in his temple, everyone says glory. And so David writes there in Psalm 29 about the thunderous sound of the voice of God. He repeats that word voice seven times to kind of describe, you know, the, the uh, magnitude of God's voice. And so these seven thunders are probably aspects of God's divine wrath, which he's going to order here, John, to not write. John hears the thunderous voice of God's divine wrath here, but then 
God says to him in in verse 4, Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. And so, whatever this, um, you know, thunderous wrath of God is, for the time being, he says to John, I don't want you to write about this. Now, this may end up being the seven bowls. But for the time being, John hears the preview, but he's told, now don't write any of this stuff down. And he says in verse 5 that the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him. So now the angel is going to take an oath by God who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. In other words, there's going to be a point in all of this where there's no turning back. And God is saying here at this point, delay no longer, no turning back. But, verse 7, in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished. In other words, the unfolding of God's plan for the ages is about to be uh, displayed here that the mystery of God would be finished, and as he declared to his servants, the prophets. You know, the prophets of the Old Testament, and even the prophetic things of the New Testament, either have or will have its fulfillment in its its time. And, And so, God is saying, listen, the unfolding of his plan for the ages is about ready to be fulfilled here. And then this very interesting part here at the end of chapter 10, where... He says in in verse uh, 8, And then the voice which I heard uh, from heaven uh, spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So this this is, uh, you read different commentaries and they say this is John's commissioning. I mean, all the way in chapter 10, but he gets finally commissioned here. But this whole idea about eating the scroll, and aren't you glad it's a little book? I mean, if it were a big book, he'd be chowing down for how long to finally consume the thing. But it's an edible book. It's an edible book to him. And so he's told, go take the book. And so he says in verse 9, so I went. I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, which is kind of an interesting thing. You know, when you think about this mighty angel, one foot on the sea, one foot on the land, and he's got this book and, and John says, give me the book. I mean, you know, that's, that's bold. Give me the book. And so he, he gives him the book. And he said, the angel said to me, take and eat it and it will make your stomach bitter. But it will also be as sweet as honey in your mouth. In other words, we use the expression, this is bittersweet. And what's bittersweet about this event here? Well, these judgments are bittersweet uh, because the things that happen upon the earth are so terrible. There's a bitter part to this. But the sweet part of it all is that God is still in the business of redeeming people and people will still be able to get saved and God still has an ultimate plan and there's a new heaven and a new earth and eternity with the Lord. And so there's hope on the horizon, but you, but you have to also take the bitter with the sweet. And these are bitter times that are coming upon the earth. And so God instructs John through this angel, take the scroll and eat it. Now, this is, this is you know, this delegated word of God in the scroll here. And it it is symbolic of, I want you to ingest and feed on 
my word. And this is actually very similar. I don't know if you remember in your Bibles, the prophet Ezekiel was instructed by God to do the same thing. And in Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, it says, Moreover, he, that is the Lord, said to me, Son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that scroll. Now, you know, in Ezekiel's day, it wasn't necessarily edible. He just, I mean, he made it edible, but it wasn't necessarily as edible as what we see here in Revelation chapter 10. But nevertheless, Ezekiel took the scroll, the parchment, and he started to eat it at Ezekiel 3 verse 3. And the Lord said to me, son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate and it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. And then he said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. So the instruction of the prophet Ezekiel was, I want you to feed on my word because now I want you to be a dispenser of it. So I want you to get it into your belly because I want you, I want it to be symbolic of it getting into your soul as you go and you preach my word to the house of Israel that you would feed on my word and, and it would be your sustenance and then you would deliver it to the people. And so Ezekiel did it and he said it was sweet actually. Uh, to my lips in the same way that John was like it's sweet on my lips but it's bitter in my stomach and and uh, in Psalm 119 103 we hear something similar in Psalm 119 103 it says how sweet are your words to my taste sweeter than honey to my mouth the, the word of God is is a wonderful sweet nourishing thing for our souls but there is this bitter part of it you know, there is a part of it where the reality of God's judgment and how he is just and righteous and holy, there comes a day of reckoning. And that day of reckoning is, is, a, is a bitter time for people who don't know the Lord. But when we do know the Lord, we feed on his word. And it's, oh, it's so sweet to our souls. And it, and it tastes like honey going down in, in a figurative sense. But this is literal here, what, what he's instructing John to do here. And so he said, my stomach was bitter, but it was sweet as honey in my mouth. And verse 10 says, then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. In other words, God is not done here. And you're, 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 ingesting this scroll because in the same way that Ezekiel was commissioned now take take God's word get it into your belly symbolic of getting it into your heart and you have to go deliver it to the people of Israel he's saying to John you have to go deliver it to the people that they might hear and not just any particular people all peoples many peoples nations tongues and kings chapter 11 and then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over 
uh, waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breadth of life... The breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So um, let's, let's pause there and back up because the, end, uh, the rest of what I didn't read from chapter 11 has to do, deal with the seventh trumpet, uh, but we'll not have time to get into that because I just want to take the remaining, what do we have, 10 minutes to take a look at this part I just read here from chapter 11, which in your Bibles might be subtitled as mine is, the two witnesses. So first I want to mention here from verse 1 that John is instructed to go measure the area around the temple of God. Now remember, when John is writing this in the late first century, in the 90s AD, the temple has been destroyed for probably at least 20 years by this point. The temple of Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans under Titus Vespasian when they conquered the city. So the fact that John sees a temple here that hasn't been standing probably for 20 years tells us what other parts of the Bible tells us, which is that there will be the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And what we find is that in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, that the Antichrist is behind the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. That the Antichrist, when this powerful, political, charismatic world leader comes onto the scene and, um, and becomes basically dictator over the earth... One of the things that he will do is establish a peace treaty among the Jewish people and among, in those days, whatever other world religions are still around, and, um, and that he makes this covenant of peace for seven years at the beginning of the tribulation period. But then the Bible tells us in Daniel 9.27 that in the middle of the seven-year peace agreement, three and a half years into it, he breaks the peace covenant proclaims himself to be God. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, it tells us that he sets himself up in the temple, or at least an image or a statue of him, and proclaims himself to be God. And then the eyes of the Jewish people are opened, that they realize that they have been deceived by this guy. And then, in fact, he's not Messiah, that he is the Antichrist. And so a temple will be rebuilt. The Bible, even though right now there's not been a temple uh, of the Jews since 70 AD, the only thing on the Temple Mount area is the Al-Aqsa Mosque, a, a mosque that the Muslims uh, built. There has not been a temple there since 70 AD, but the Bible says that there will be a temple that will be rebuilt on the Temple Mount. I don't know that we will be here for the time of the laying of that cornerstone, 
but I can tell you that every year on the 9th of August, a zealous uh, group of uh, Jews march to the Temple Mount to try to lay the cornerstone. They do it symbolically because they know that the Muslims will turn them away. Because after the 1967 war, uh, then Minister of of Defense, Moshe Dayan, made an agreement with the the Muslims that they could maintain administrative rights of the Temple Mount. Um, It was a decision that um, the Israelis would later regret. And for that reason, there is not a statue or a portrait to Moshe Dayan anywhere in Israel today. He gave away the administrative right of the Temple Mount, even though the Israelis had successfully captured the Temple Mount in the 1967 war. He gave up administrative rights and said, okay, well, we will have the control of the territory insofar as the borders, but we will allow you, he says to the Muslims, to control what happens on the Temple Mount area, seeing as how it is also uh, viewed by Muslims today as a secret, as a rather a sacred site for them as well. And so the Muslims have administrative rights. When we go to Israel and, and we, we take tours of Israel, when we get to the part in Jerusalem where we're going to go up on the Temple Mount, I always say to the group, we never know if we're going to be allowed in today or not. Because the Muslims can just decide we don't want tourists up here today and then you don't, you don't get to go. And so Um, They maintain the administrative rights, and therefore, maintaining the administrative rights, they're not going to allow a Jewish temple to be built up there. But there will come a day when an Antichrist, who will be very persuasive and will issue this peace accord, will somehow persuade this to happen. And so it will happen. And John sees this temple of God standing and this altar there and those who worship there. And... Then he speaks about how the Gentiles will trample it for 42 months. Now, I want you to notice in your Bibles that it says in verse, 40, in verse 2, 42 months. And it mentions in verse 3, 1,260 days. Now, 42 months is three and a half years. And 1,260 days is also three and a half years if you use the Babylonian calendar like Daniel chapter 9, which is a, this is kind of like a parallel to what's happening in Daniel chapter 9 with the Antichrist. The Babylonian calendar only had 360 days on their calendar year, not 365 like we have. So 1,260 days divided by 360 days on the Babylonian calendar is exactly three and a half years. Now, why does verse 2 say 42 months and verse 3 says 1,260 days? Because it's distinguishing the first half of the tribulation period from the latter half of the tribulation period. The first half of the tribulation period is the 1,260 days. The last half is 42 months. Now, so it's given to us a little bit backwards, but he's giving us a reference point. And here's what he's saying. He's saying that in the latter half... Of the tribulation period, the 42 months, the three and a half years of the last half of the tribulation period, Gentiles are going to run across the temple area, the city of Jerusalem. Why? Because you see in the middle of the tribulation at the three and a half year point is when the Antichrist reveals himself. And now the Gentiles, in other words, the heathens, those who are, you know, non-believers, they're going to take over the city of Jerusalem. And, and so they are going to... Um, be um, trampling the city 
for 42 months. The last three and a half years of the tribulation period are going to be the worst. Leading up to, okay, the first three and a half years of the tribulation, the 1,260 days, John sees here two witnesses, two people who are sent by God, given power by God to prophesy 1,260 days, and they're clothed in sackcloth. Now, um, I've only got like a couple of minutes, so I'm going to get as far as I can and be true to the time. But the question becomes now, who are the two witnesses of Revelation? And the first thing to note is their location. We're talking about Jerusalem because it says where the temple is located. And it also tells us later in verse 8, this is the place where their Lord was crucified. So that settles it. We know this is Jerusalem. That these two witnesses appear. These are two people that God has assigned a particular uh, mission. And they have been commissioned to do this, to preach a message of repentance. Because the language there in verse 3, when it says that they are prophesying, and it mentions that they're clothed in sackcloth, well, those are all biblical descriptions of people who were sent to preach a message of repentance. So these two individuals are raised up by God with the purpose of proclaiming the gospel. And calling people to repentance. So these are, these are prophets who appear in the scene, clothed in sackcloth, preaching a message of repentance. Their duration, as I mentioned, is 1,260 days, which equals three and a half years using the Babylonian calendar, similar to Daniel chapter 9. And so they preach the first half of the seven-year tribulation period. So God sends them at the beginning... But then there's this critical event that happens midway when they actually die, but I'm getting ahead of myself. And it tells us here in the text that we just read that for their protection, God gives them the ability to produce fire from their mouths if anyone tries to harm them. Wouldn't you love that gift? I mean, you know, like somebody keeps cutting you off in traffic and, and you just are so sick and tired of this and, you know, and they're, they're giving you, you know, a, a certain index finger and you're, and you're so mad at them and you just roll down your window. <sighs> Wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, come on. Not right, but awesome. Okay. You know, your flesh would want to do that kind of thing just to kind of like blow fire and, and, and you know, do harm to people if they try to harm you. And God gives them the ability to uh, breathe fire like dragons if anybody tries to harm them. Now, the next point on the slide is their identification. Who are these two witnesses? And we're going to have to wait till next week. <laughs> To talk about that. That's right, friends. We're going to leave you with a cliffhanger. Who are these two prophets that God sends? They have names, and we're going to talk about who they might very well be. But that's next Wednesday night, same time, same place, right here. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for, your, for this time in your word. And thank you, Lord, that you've given us a preview of these things that we might be ready. You want your church to be equipped you want us to be prepared. You don't want us to be caught off guard, to sleep at night, but to be awake in the day. And, uh, Lord, to be ready for your imminent return. 
So we thank you for this time in your word. Continue to work in our hearts even as we go home tonight. We're thankful for your grace. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for Jesus. In his mighty name we pray. And everybody said, amen. God bless you all.